Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Because deep time will blow your mind. David, how do you do, sir? I'm doing great. I am doing great. It's a new year and new things are going to happen. And I'm really hoping it's going to be great new things because we need great it. new things. 21, more fun in 21. Man, we need it. We need it so bad. I'm, I'm ready for a new year, you know. And I've been walking up and down this hill here. And it's the sun is out today. And we had a horrendous storm. Yes, like I, I heard about that. Five-day storm. And you know what happened in that storm, man. Oh, you showed me pictures that a huge, a Widowmaker came down. Yeah, yeah, I know it. A massive tree, was it a, a, a cedar? It was a hemlock. hemlock. A hemlock came down and hit Most your roof. Most of the Tongass forest, 80% of the forest is hemlock. It was a like a 50-foot hemlock that fell on our house in the morning. Wow, but it didn't break through, did it? It did not. It actually removed the gutter. It was a huge bang. And, right. uh, you know, the reason it, that it went, well, it gusted to 80 miles an hour. Wow. So up here in the hill. So we had 80 mile an hour gust. But, you know, really, it's the saturation of the soil. The soil saturation is all, it's been raining so much that the basically the ground liquefies. And there's not much of a root system on a hemlock spruce thank god and cedars it, have it these... always rains in ketchikan for decades and thousands of years that's what that's but what it know, is up there it's sort of don't these trees they learn yeah they they learn and i'm learning you know this house has been standing on this hill for 120 years now and uh we had a, literally a wake that's, up that's a mere blip of geologic tree that's time right that brings tree us tree time to, yeah there we go that's a paleo thing so anyways with tree time i read a story once where this guy was a an advanced man for an indonesian logging company and he went in and the company couldn't reach him after months and months and so they sent in another guy to find this first guy and he on the trail miles into the deep forest of indonesia found these natives frozen as though they're in mid-step and it turns out this guy founds this is a fictional story okay i was found some sort of hallucinogen or or forest elixir that caused him to slow down his time so he can see tree and plant growth in their time oh okay. now, in other That's words cool. he could see yeah. trees growing and vines fighting for the dappled sunlight so to an observer the person watching the tree in tree time would be frozen that's a cool concept. I like it is that. a very cool concept. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember what the story was, uh, but um, it was the first time it gave me the visual that you see in those National Geographic documentaries of, and and in Blue Planet, of you know the the flowers moving right, as they're growing right. in time lapse photography. We humans can't see or fathom the timeline of the growth and, and lives of plants. Well, you know, it's 
when I, I think about, uh, uh, you know, this, they, they'd like to get the cut out up here in uh, Southeast Alaska, the oh. timber industry. And I think about forest managers, right? Think about forest managers, and they're actually trying to manage the forest in human time. Right. These guys have these little 20-year careers. These men and women have 20-year careers, and they're trying to manage for generations down the line. But so. a tree lives two to 400 years, right? Yeah. Up there? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, 600, six, some of these cedars can be 700 years old. And right. Anyways, yeah, we've got this massive Sitka spruce looming over the house and I've been doing a lot of calculations to see which way it might go. But, oh, another one, this is another but, one. But it's a Sitka spruce and it has like octopus like uh, uh, roots that spread right. everywhere and actually all through the yard. So I feel pretty good about that one. But when you look at the hemlocks, very narrow. I mean, they, there's not much holding them up. Isn't so. Sitka spruce the main tree that has been logged for a century to build houses in the lower 48? Isn't that kind of like the main reason you'd cut them down? Well, it's used a lot. In, oh, aircraft, uh, Boeing. Boeing used them in aircraft. That's right. The mosquito, the, the de Havilland mosquito was built out of spruce, but also the spruce goose. Howard right. Hughes's oh, massive okay. airplane. All right. Oh. So that's why I remember because I was a pilot for many years. Yeah, there you go. Hey, well, you know, we have been talking uh, trees and uh, deep time. Actually, speaking of deep time, you know, earlier, a few months back, I was able to escape Ketchikan and I went to the Midwest. Right. Remember this? Yeah. In the middle of a pandemic, you bravely yeah. got on a plane and flew to Seattle. Then you drove. Drove you all the drove way. one half of the North American continent. Yeah. There was a, like a little window. Things were looking good. And, you know, I wanted to get, we got a car, a new car. So Michelle and I drove to Kansas where I was able to see my buddy Chuck Bonner, who I first met in 1992, and uh, had an exhibit with him actually that closed this year, this last year in 2020 uh, at the Sternberg Museum. We called it Prairie Ocean Long Time No See. As and in S-E-A. Yes, yeah, S-E-A, and that's at the Sternberg Museum in Hayes, Kansas. And it was up for about eight months and it was a very cool exhibit. And we had a lot of fossils that Doug, that uh, Chuck had dug up and we had an art car and all this kind of cool stuff. And Chuck is a musician. I'm a musician. We got the jam, hang out, drink a lot of beer. He is funny, grandfatherly. Yeah. He is just a, a wonderful, wonderful, fun, warm guy. And, and his history is is pretty cool too. He's got that Midwestern laid back yeah. kind of ease <laughs> about him and uh, tells a good story. But here's what's interesting. The audio for this this interview is a oh, bit wonky. Right. Yeah, it's a bit wonky, but it's, it's definitely not uh, as bad as I thought it was going to be because explain where both of you were when you did, even though you're, you two were in the same Kansas location, you were in different physical locations when we recorded this. Where were you, Ray? Yeah. You were what, outside? I was outside. I like to think that this adds to the ambiance of the whole thing. So if you listen carefully, you can hear trucks going by and insects and all kinds of stuff. But we were actually not too far from the Chalk Rock, uh, the Monument Rocks. So Chuck didn't have really very good internet. We had to go to a neighboring uh, cattle farm. And it oh. literally is a farm. And he was inside. And we need a to barn? be- barn? 
Why was he so echoey? Well, he was in a, a warehouse, oh. and I, to be separated from him so you wouldn't hear a, a feedback loop, I was sitting outside in the gazebo, <laughs> and there are farm animals that come very menacingly close to me. <laughs> I was worried. And there were, and actually, at this, this farm, um, there are, uh, they had some exotic animals too. So there were actually were some like, uh, uh, the, some of those designer pigs. Well, like designer pigs, uh, you know, I mean, the, the pet pigs. They weren't like farm pigs. They you were. You mean the Vietnamese? The yeah. Vietnamese? Well, those yeah. aren't designer pigs. Those are small well, pigs. Well, you don't usually see them hanging around. And uh, so there were pigs and sheep. And right, right. Basically, a, a farm. A farm. They call it, it's called a, a farm. They have farm animals, Ray. It was literally, she was a ranch, cattle ranch. Anyway, so uh, the the audio is, is unique. And so uh, it's definitely a little bit more fun to listen to than uh, our studio interviews. So why don't we go ahead and uh, get, uh, well, I'm not going to get him on the line. I'm going to get both of you on the line and pretend. Yeah, because I'm, yeah, I'm you're, there. You're in Kansas and Chuck Bonner is in Kansas. And this is from months ago, and we're this introducing from, it now. So you see what's happening here? Is it like the time warp thing of some well, sort? Well, there's a time and a location warp. So uh, wow. I'm going to start uh, that phone thing right now. And let's, uh, let's call up the past. Forward wow. into yeah. the past. The past. <laughs> David Strassman, meet Chuck Bonner, artist, field paleontologist, fossil fisherman, and co-owner of the Keystone Gallery, all-around cool guy, fellow musician, fellow paleo nerd artist, Chuck Bonner. Well, thank you, Nate. Great, great. Well, I don't know why I'm saying thank you, but <laughs> great to meet you, Chuck. I've well, heard so thank, much about you. Thank you, you. very much. <laughs> I've heard a lot about you. It's uh, hasn't all been good, but it's been uh, good. <laughs> well, it's good what it is when it is good, and when it's not good, it's not so good. So, <laughs> well, uh, Chuck and I go way back. We go back twenty plus years. Twenty, but I, yeah, I think we met in nineteen ninety nine, somewhere around there. But it's kind of a cool story because my best friend from high school, twenty two years, right? Ninety two. So my Before best friend from yeah, okay, my best friend from <laughs> high school was in a band with you. And when I was coming back in 92 to Kansas to my 20th high school reunion, and I was also working in a book, Planet Ocean. Uh, I'm sitting outside and there's a giant wasp just landed there. Um, Planet Ocean, uh, my, our mutual pal, Jan Eddy said, you gotta find Chuck Bonner, he's a fossil hunter. And I came rolling onto your, uh, your property that day with my family. So, and the rest is history, man. I, I remember the link with Jan, and uh, he Jan asked me if you could call me. I said, "Nah, okay." I, you know, I'm kind of tentative about these things sometimes, but uh, but whenever you called, it was like we were talking at the same time and talking almost about the same things at the same time. And then you said, "I'll tell you what. I'll send you my Brad and Mai's first book." Shocking fish tales, and I said, "Okay, that'd be cool." So once I saw that, I knew you're somewhat legit. You know, you, you, uh, <laughs> you're pretty damn good artist. So, <laughs> getting a recommendation from our friend Jan Eddie is always dubious, but yeah, no, <laughs> so, you and I immediately clicked. We clicked, man. 
So, Chuck, are are you a paleo nerd, and why? No, not at all. No, I, I'm a paleontologist. I'm not a nerd about it. So, well, what's the difference? <laughs> well, th th there's uh... a there's a difference because I've been immersed in it all my life. So it's not really something I need to aspire to. It's just something oh. that's part. It's just part of my existence and my upbringing, basically. Well, Ray, that separates the men from the boys. He's the man, and we're the boys. Yeah, you know what is so cool, uh, Dave, about about Chuck is that the incredible heritage that he comes with, because he is legit. You and I are kind of posers. He was born in. He was basically born here in the fossil fields. And you are second generation uh, fossil hunter. Yeah. And I, you know, I met you as a middle-aged guy. I'm now I'm an old man, but I couldn't <laughs> find a fossil if you pointed to it or whatever. But, any, I, you know, and I was so excited to actually finally go out fossil hunting here in western Kansas. I went to high school in Kansas, but I'd never really been out to western Kansas, and I never really had the opportunity to find fossils until I went out with you way back in 98. Yeah. Chuck is the real deal. So, what was it like meeting Cope personally, Chuck? Oh, it was a little. It was a little touchy. Uh, he was kind of demanding in a way. Yeah. Did he put the uh, skull on the wrong end of the fish? Well, he, he had his head on backwards most of the time, I think. But uh, no, actually, he was very instrumental in getting the bedrock, so to speak, for paleontology. The only one that might have been before him was Lighty who I think is basically considered the father of American paleontology. Chuck, what, tell, tell our listeners who uh, Cope was, the well, great Cope and Marsh feud. Well, well Cope was uh, a son of Quakers and lived in uh, Philadelphia when he was part of the, uh, the Academy of Science there. But he became interested in all kinds of fossils. But uh, when fossils started to be found out west, uh, that's what really sparked his interest in getting a lot of, he wanted to name a lot of fossils. And Marsh, who was from Yale, wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to name as many fossils as they could. They relied on a lot of collectors. Uh, and that's, I guess, I, I, I would say I'm not, I, I'm not a paleo nerd, but I'm a field paleontologist because I know how to collect fossils. Is this the 1850s, a pre-Civil yeah. War, or just after? No, no this was like uh, eight, the late 1860s. Uh, actually, the, the plesiosaur you're talking about was found in 1867, I think. Uh, and uh, the, the army, actually a, a doctor at uh, Fort Wallace found it in the Pierce Shale, uh, west of where we live in Wallace County. And it was uh, sent to Cope because he was the main guy that was going to do something with it. Uh, it was, you know, it was too bad that he got a little excited and, you know, put it where it wasn't supposed to be. And so this is Edward Drinker Cope mm -hmm. and Othniel Marsh. Othniel's from Yale. Edward Drinker Cope. What's that first name? What's his first name? Othniel, but Edward Drinker Cope. He never right? drank. He and never drank a day in his life. He was a he was a, a Quaker, but, Quaker. He did. but but. Uh, <laughs> Marsh, Othniel March, I believe it's, uh, it was his competitor. That's the weirdest name I ever heard. And they were pals at first, and then it all, they say that the, the feud started because uh, Cope got a little excited, and he put the skull on the wrong end of this long-necked plesiosaur, 
And Marsh was the one that pointed it out and sort of did a nanner, nanner. You got it wrong. (laughs) And then it started going downhill from there. But what is cool is that there's a link between the Bonner family and Mr. Cope. Is there not, sir? Well, not not really with Cope. Uh, uh, My dad uh, was in high school when his science teacher took a bunch of the boys. Back then, they probably wouldn't have let, let girls... Uh, go with them probably, but uh, now there's a lot of women paleontologists. Amazing how many women paleontologists there are. Most of them like birds for some reason. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but Dad went out and they took uh, uh, Mr. Weedell was his name. Uh, took his Model T out to the fossil beds, and Dad got out and right off the bat he found a fish skull. So he said, "Oh, Mr. Weedell, I found a mo- I found a dinosaur." So they'd all heard about dinosaurs, of course, but he was basic. The fish, the fish hooked him on paleontology, and he never, he never lost that energy and enthusiasm for fossils. But he was self-taught, and he would send off, and he got all of the uh, Williston books. Who was a famous KU paleontologist? He did a book on mosasaurs and turtles. So Dad sent off and got those as a teenager. And uh, he learned, he read them and learned them himself. Uh, and then later on, uh, he, when he was, he found a short neck plesiosaur and uh, he donated it to the, to the museum that's now called the Sternberg Museum. And he got to meet George Sternberg. George Sternberg. Yes. Yes. Uh, we don't really have too many links to the Copes, but we have a lot of linkage to the Sternbergs. Yeah. So Sternberg collected for the uh, the elder the, the, the oldest collected for, for cope yeah for cope yeah that okay. was so there's the link yeah there. charles h wanted to collect for marsh but marsh since uh charles h was not an academician you know who Ma- is charles h charles h sternberg, sternberg. was george okay, there were a lot of sternbergs that's right there were a lot of sternbergs charles sternberg collected fossils for edward drinker cope but later on switched sides and collected for othniel marsh Cope's blood rival in the great bone wars of the American West. That rivalry and feud went on from 1877 till 1892. Charles Sternberg then had three sons named George, Charles, and Levi, all of whom became paleontologists just like their daddy. The Sternberg Museum of Natural History at Fort Hayes State University in Hayes, Kansas is named for the son named George. Marion Bonner, Chuck's dad, knew George. You got all that? I know it could be a little confusing, but now you know your Sternbergs. Carry on. That was the first one that really got into it deep into paleontology. But his three sons all became paleontologists. Uh, George stayed in Kansas and the other two, uh, George M. and uh, uh, his brother, uh, Levi. Levi, Levi Sternberg. And, and they ended up staying in Canada and being more involved in dinosaurs in museums up there, Ottawa and Toronto, actually. So, but, so, but your father, Marion, was uh, one hell of a collector. And he, he soon was, he was collecting a lot for Sternberg, mm-hmm. but many of the fossils that we see from Kansas in major museums around the world were collected not only by your father, but by you helping your father and a few of your brothers. Like it was a whole family thing. Your family. Yeah, we went. It's pretty much if we went on a picnic, it was to go fossil hunt. We didn't want to just go out and eat sandwiches. We had to go hunt fossils first. And... 
for instance, Dave, like the L.A. County Museum, the fish within a fish that you see at the Tyrell Museum. I was just going to ask about that. The fish it's within a fish. Family. There's it's a fact that there's a fact in this, right, with a fish in its stomach. A gillicus. Who who found that one? Well, my brother found it, and uh, that's one of my earliest memories in the Time Life books on Fox. Okay, well, that's, that's like not, my earliest memory. I, I need to correct uh, something. Uh, the, the the one okay. you're talking about is the one in Hayes, and that okay. and that was collected by George Sternberg. There's been a half dozen fish within a fish found. There's a beautiful one at the uh, Smithsonian, actually. Uh, the one we found would be 50 years after, or was it 40, 30? I don't know. Uh, George, it would be 30 years, I guess, because George collected the fish within a fish in Hayes in 52, and my brother found the fish within a fish that ended up in Canada in 82. So, wow. Uh, but it has, it has a complete fish in it. The fish is upside down in that one, so it makes it a little different than the one in Hayes. So, so tell us about the... What was Kansas like 60 million years ago? When, when did it first become a seaway? How long did it remain a seaway? Did it ever dry up and then fill up again? How mm. many levels and layers are there of shoreline? I'm sure it's a, a well-documented uh, strata and area. Well, uh, mid to late Cretaceous period is basically when it was here. So we're talking uh, probably at least 150 million years ago, uh, maybe a little more than that. I'm not sure about that That end. I'm just more familiar with the later version. But uh, it really didn't drain out until the Laramide Revolution. Long live the Laramide Revolution. And that's the Laramide Orogeny, which is the, the pre-Rockies, which rose out the of the center of North America. No, the Laramide was actually the starting of the modern Rockies. Oh, it is. Oh, the modern Rockies. Uh, so when that started rising, it, it drained the water out. Now, was, was the seaway because North America split in two with an ocean in the middle, or was it because two land masses came together? May I jump in? Yeah, Ray. Well, the Western Interior Seaway is what we're talking about. And North America, during the Cretaceous, uh, many times the seaway advanced and receded, but basically North America was divided into two continents. Uh, it was Laramidia in the west, where you live, Dave. And we were, where Chuck and I are right now here in Kansas, the Western Interior Seaway. And then there was Appalachia. So we think that America is polarized and separated now. It was act, really physically was separated back in the Cretaceous. But uh, that, as the Rocky Mountains rose in, in the Paleogene, that's when the Western Interior Seaway did actually empty out, and we are pretty high in the prairie. Are, are we at about 3,000 feet here, Chuck? Yeah, that's about our elevation. Really? So, yeah. Well, how far so are you from the Rocky Mountain uplift? Uh, 250 miles. Wow, and you're, you're still at 3,000 feet? Mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't yeah. realize Kansas was so high. Just or Western Kansas. Yeah, just Western. Western. Yeah. Hey, so let's clear up one thing here with these formations. What formations? Let's talk about, all right, so there, there is the Naira Brower Chalk overlaid by the Pierre Shale, right? Yes. Uh, lower strata is uh, the Dakota Sandstone. So the Sternbergs, uh, Charles H. got interested in Dakota Sandstone leaves that are formed in concretions. And that's kind of, there's actually been a few armored dinosaurs found in the Dakota sandstone. And that runs through the east central part of the Kansas, 
but then as you farther west you go, you're getting into the more of the ocean sediments. So you, uh, through the center part of Kansas is what's uh, called the uh, Greenhorn Formation, and that's where they made fence posts out of a certain layer that they would pop. The early settlers would pop those off because they were a foot thick, so they could pop those off and make fence posts. They didn't have any trees, <laughs> so. Through the center part of Kansas, there's a lot of these uh, uh, mean, limestone fence posts. You mean the, the strata was so thick and hard, you can just cut a little uh, one uh, foot, like a spike out of it? Yeah, yeah foot by uh, yeah, foot by foot, they would use uh, feathers and and pop it loose, and then. Uh, and there's a weird guy named uh, Samuel Dinsmore <laughs> that actually made a he actually made a, a log cabin out of limestone. Wow! So he had these he had these twenty or thirty foot chunks of this limestone, and he notched it like a log cabin, and then built it. Crazy man! But he he built this log cabin out of limestone. So well, actually, I, the Keystone Gallery. Uh, you are in a former church. Mm-hmm. Right, that was built in 1916, and it's a limestone church. Right, is it built out of the same well, stuff? Well, it's actually built out of the chalk because there is some chalk. Oh, okay. oh. It's the Smoky Hill chalk is above the Fort Hayes limestone, but the Smoky Hill chalk has certain layers that are fairly dense, and they cut a lot of quarries back in the day because you know getting wood out that far was tough, tough too. But most of it have to be put up on a footing because if you had it on the ground, it would leach away. It wasn't strong enough, but it, it's actually. The Keystone Gallery in our house is built out of chalk. This chalk is millions of years of dead, tiny, calciferous coccolithophores. Is that what they are? That's true. Yeah. And they're little tiny guys, and they die, and they fall to the bottom of the ocean. It was a shallow sea, so you're talking, mm-hmm. what, a thousand mm-hmm. feet deep, something well, like they that? They say more like 600. Pretty shallow. Warm and shallow. Warm and shallow. And so you get these accretion over millions of years. How thick is the thickest chalk formation? Um, well, you mean the, the total thickness of the Smoky Hill chalk is uh, over 500 feet. Wow. How many years does that represent of deposition? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> 20, 20 years. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I think every foot was mm, 30,000 years, maybe. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Wow. So for the last couple of days, uh, we just got to go to the Jerusalem Rocks. So Jer- Jerusalem uh, Rocks this morning is what it's called. It's a new area of, of uh, Kansas. It's uh one old area of Kansas that's been opened up to the public now. Uh, Chuck has dug there for years, but these are these spectacular chalk rock formations that just blow your mind. They're just beautiful. And if you're driving along on I-70, you never see these things. So you have to know about because these they're down to go in the go- they're down in the gullies, kind of down out of view and off in the distance. And uh, when you go into these valleys, it's like journeying back in time. It's and sometimes actually, Chuck. Uh, You've described it. It's almost like being in the ocean sometimes. These Why? these rocks and waves, and there's almost a smell of the ocean sometimes. Well, right? Well, yeah. When you're when you're walking over it, and especially after rain or something, you get this smell that uh, I've kind of smelt that on seashores before. It just it's just weird, but uh, uh, it, I don't know. There's something there. I mean, but. Uh, 
That's it's brilliant. trippy, man. Oh, that's beautiful. It could be plants, too. I don't know. <laughs> it could be wet plants that are putting off this uh, smell. Zephactinus. Mm -hmm. It means sword ray. That's true. These are very vicious looking fish. Their teeth are pointing straight out. Chuck, this is the, the fish that eats the other fish. What's the typical fish that's stuck in the gut and the throat of Zephactinus all the time? Which, what fish is that? Normally it's the Gillicus, which is a close relative of Zephactinus. They are both chirocentric fishes. So, um, What does that mean? Uh, something to do with their vertebrae. I'm not sure. Kairos. But how big are these? <laughs> let's describe how how big are these fish? Okay, so the, I would say the average of a you know adult male zyphagnus is probably about 14 feet. And the gillicus is uh, a, a full grown six feet. So and the zyphagnus have two teeth in the front on both lower and and, and upper jaws. Actually, there's no many there's, teeth. There's four uh, on the premax, which is the the bone before the, the top jaw. The, the top jaw is called the maxilla, so the premax are stuck on the end of that. So there's two on each side of the, and sometimes three, but usually it's two on each side of the premaxilla. So there's like four things. Yeah, like four sticks. And, you know, and the, uh, for the bigger, and the bigger fish are the teeth, three inches long, maybe more. It depends on how big the fish is. Yeah. So these fish, uh, they would give you a run for their money, for sure. Uh, do you think that, uh, would a Mosasaur need to be nervous around a school of Zephactinus? If there was a school, that would be terrifying. That would be like 14-foot piranhas. Are we talking about... Uh, but when they start eating each other, I mean, I don't think they would work together too well. You don't really... I, well, let me ask you this. <laughs> with, with the fish within a fish, they... Do you always find the, the prey fish oriented the same way? If it's a gillicus, is it always tail first or head first into the mouth? And how do these fish die choking? Almost always head first. And I think that's uh, that's shown to be in modern fishes a lot of times. Bigger fish will take on a fish head first. How do they do that? They swim right at them? Do they, take, do they bite their tail can, off first and you, they go you out? Can no, you, they, you can imagine how fast these fish were. I mean, they just probably hunted and found one and wham, I don't know, or got into some that were moving towards them and just opened their mouths and whack. You You've know? seen the fish uh, that wait in the bottom of the ocean. They'll wait for a, a fish to swim by and just open their mouth, and they get them in the head first but this all the is, time. But this, this is a shallow seaway. Zephactinus is obviously a high-speed fish. It's not a fish that's going to lurk okay, in the bottom. Like a sailfish. So it's, it's massive. Yeah, like a sail it's like fish. a marlin. It's it's as big as a marlin and as fast as a marlin. No, marlin so, marlin are fairly solitary predators. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know they when there's bait balls and that kind of thing, they'll you'll see many of them circling, kind of working together. But I'm just kind of a you know it's the little boy in me. Like, could a Zephactinus kill a Tylosaurus? <laughs> you know, could three of them take him on? That would be a that would be a stretch. Uh, for one, for one thing, uh, there hasn't been a lot of other animals found in Zyphactinus besides fish. Moses, right. Mosasaurs have have they've been finding all kinds of things in them. You know, there's sometimes there's been some bird bones in a mosasaur, uh, fish. Um, well, there I think there's a mosasaur at the Smithsonian that has parts of a plesiosaur inside of it. So, well, now you recently found a mosasaur 
with a belly full of belemnites. 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 Oh. Right. So uh, I, I, you know, I can talk. One uh, of the only ones in the world, right? Well, it's the only one so far. Only one, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, the paper is pending, so I've got somebody that's uh, going to do a paper on it. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it seems like that this mass of belemnites caused the death of the mosasaur because they're all <laughs> they're all stuck together in its kind of lower gullet kind of area of the thing, and it's like there's a dozen of them all together in a Thelomites are finger-shaped uh, cephalopods, kind of like late Cretaceous ammonites. Well, no, it's actually... Well, they're, they're squid. More like a squid, man. With an external yeah. shell. Uh, no, it, it was an shell. internal shell that, that, fossil, oh. that fossilized. And they're actually kind of rare in the chalk. We don't find very many of them out in this high chalk. Uh, they're a lot more prevalent... Uh, Oh, probably in more shale type periods, you know, areas. But uh, like I've only maybe found a half dozen all my years of hunting that have been separate. But then finding 12 of them all together inside this mosasaur. And I used to call this mosasaur Bill. But when the Bellamite showed up, she is now mosasaur Bell. Hey, so, so the shale... Is that more like a muddy estuary rather than... It was still part of the Inland Sea, but it is more... Shale is basically hardened mud, and it doesn't... Right. And I just talked to a guy today about he wanted to know the difference because there's a lot of gray chalk out there. I said, you have to use the acid test, and not Ken Kesey's or whoever else's, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it's the... Uh, you put acid or, you know vinegar or anything acid on the chalk and it'll bubble like holy crazy you know because it's got all this calcium in it you put sure. it you put it on shale and it's dead so there's one area that's close to our place that is the contact zone between the shale and the chalk so a lot of these stratigraphers that you know stratigraphers are strange people but but they'll go out there with their eye drops and and tests and, and then they try to locate where that that level is where the change from, and they think it had something to do with a uh, cooling down effect, uh, like an ice ice event that caused fewer organ less organic matter in the sediment, and that's why it's shale instead of chalk. What I think is really interesting is that in the chalk, you do not find really any ammonites, and you don't find the shells of of ammonites, they dissolve, they're not, but we know they're there because you found some impressions yeah. and this sea must have been full of them, but you yet they you don't find them in the chalk. The, the, the calcium, they don't preserve in the chalk. The calcium content was so much that uh, you find uh, impressions. Uh, not so many of the ammonites, mostly baculites, but there are some impressions of ammonites in the chalk, but you do find the hood or the aptiki, which is a more of a chitinous material and it didn't dissolve so we find those so from the size of those we can tell there there were some pretty good size ammonites uh there's a there's a, a double and aptiki that's at the sternberg that's almost the size of your hand so we're talking about a pretty good size ammonite with that one so you mean the, the there's a chemical reaction that causes wow. the ammonite wow. shells to yeah, not yeah. preserve yeah, I, I found a lot of impressions, but uh, you know, you're just not going to get it. Have you taken molds of them? Oh, they are kind of a mold, or you know, they're really. It, it would just be kind of like a little shape. It's, they're not real dramatic. Um, so I know that the Bonner family, being you guys are great fossil hunters, you, your father. Um, there's a lot of uh, creatures that bear the Bonner name, and probably one of the most uh, famous ones is one that 
that uh, David was referring to earlier, which is Bonner Ichthys. And there's really kind of an interesting story behind that. Would you mind sharing that with Dave and I? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad they named it Bonner Ichthys because there's a lot of Bonners involved in the whole process. I had gone home uh, during a summer break. I, I would get like a, a month off, but if I wanted to make more money, I could stay at the Sternberg Museum and, and make 40 hours a week as opposed to... But a lot of times I just got tired of it and I'd go home and we'd go fossil hunting. So we were out fossiling, my younger brother and my dad and I, and uh, my younger found this beautiful little turtle that was only like not hard, not even a foot long, the whole shell. And so I was down the slope and I found a Protosphyrena, which I thought was a Protosphyrena of the fin. And so I dug back a little and I wasn't too excited because, you know, they show up quite a bit. Uh, but then we, I started finding these big flat bones that were next to the fins. And Dad came over and looked at it and said, boy, that's pretty different. I've never seen anything like that. So we knew something was different with it. So um, I, I went back to school. And Dad, that fall, came back and uncovered it and collected it. And he pretty much, he was pretty good about just kind of tracing and getting out to the edges and just leaving it in the chalk, wrapping it and getting it stuck together. But... Spiker, our old 49 Suburban, broke a spring getting it out. Uh, he had a local cowboy help him uh, drop because it was on kind of a pillar. So it was kind of up high, so they had to let it down with a rope to put it in Spiker. And so from there, Dad took it home and uh, lightened it up a bit. And then my brother Orville was the, the head preparator at the museum in KU. And so uh, Dad was able to get that to KU. Well, my brother prepared it and set it in a flat. Uh, a lot of fish people looked at it, but none of them really decided they wanted to take it on. They didn't know if it was maybe a ray or something different. Uh, but it had these big saucer-sized orbitals or eye bones, you know, eye socket bones. And so that was pretty odd in itself. Uh, so it sat around, in, it was in storage till, I don't know, 2010, I guess. Dad has since passed on, and he would have been so proud to have a genus name for him. And so uh, uh, there was a, a guy, Matt Friedman, was getting his doctorate, and they had already done some casting of this, the skulls parts of this fish, and he saw them, and it rung a bell in him on Jurassic uh, pachycormid filter feeders, and most people thought they became extinct at the end of the Jurassic, but it turns out they flourished in the inland sea because we find a lot of fins, not too many skull material, but, uh, but so that was pretty exciting to have that. So this is a filter feeder that strained its, did it, did it have like a baleen or just a huge no, wide I, mouth like a, like a whale shark? Like or a basking shark, yeah, but basically right. that's kind of, uh, but it's more related to uh, freshwater paddlefish, I guess. So, why would, uh, oh yeah, I was just going to say, when you said giant eyes, paddlefish have those giant eyes, mm. and why would it have a big eye? Is it, is it a rudimentary eye? That's why it has to be so big, because it certainly wouldn't be deep or benthic. I'm not sure why it had big eyes. You'd have to ask one of them. But uh, my, what big honest. eyes you had! I, I think they wanted to see where they were going. But yeah, there's. So just to remind you, David, uh, that uh, uh, Matt Friedman is the fellow who found the fossil of the flounder with the eye migrating to the other oh, side. Right. So we've been talking about him. Oh, right. But Matt oh. is a well-known. Chuck, did fish you hear guy. about that? 
Chuck, no, we're talking about no. We're talking about evolution. See, I, I'm, I'm not really a paleo nerd, so I don't keep track of all, a lot of these things. So. Ooh, burn, burn. Well, you know what? He's a legit. I'm not, not going to tell you about this then. Okay, well, that's fine. You know, I, I'll tell I, them later over a beer. But, <laughs> but yeah, in the Jurassic, there were these giant uh, filter-feeding fish, lead zickthies. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. huge, huge. 40, 50 feet, but Bonerichthys is a genus named after your family, and I think that is so cool that Bonerichthys, that Matt saw fit to name that for you and, and Orville, and, and yeah. especially your father, yeah. Mary. Yeah, my Googling so. went down the rabbit hole, and Cope actually did some describing of parts of those fins. Yeah, those fins. Yeah, it's been a mystery for 100-plus years, mm -hmm. and it all came together with this fossil that uh, the Bonner family found. Well, and they're very similar to Protosphyrina, and maybe Protosphyrina is a pachycorn. I'm not sure where it fits into that whole thing, but uh, now what's a pachycormid? I'm not sure. <laughs> that, that's just, well, it's wait a minute. Those fish. P a c h y. That's elephant. Pachy, pachy is like isn't that? Like, we'll, we'll have a link on the website. <laughs> I, I have to take just a minute to to describe what I'm seeing around me, if I may, because we're doing a special broadcast here from the farm country of Kansas, and there's a. There's a large sheep approaching me over here. There's been several pigs over there, and uh, there's cattle in the distance, and I'm a little nervous, but... Hey, Chuck, <laughs> over all these years, I've been fossil hunting. When I came fossil hunting with you, I was actually able to find a pterodactyl bone. I thought it was a nyctosaurus, but you you said maybe it's pteranodon. You found many a pteranodon. Wait, wait, wait. What's a nyctosaurus, first of all, that you it, just took it, it, well, it's, it's a type of pterosaur. Uh, it's a small, mm. smaller version of Tyrannodon. Did you see the black fly? Was that a fly? Yeah, that was a fly. He's back. That was a fly, black fly. He's been, he's been bugging me. So, oh, much like someone else. But hey, <laughs> so tell us about all the uh, pterodactyls you've found over the years. You've found some big-ass Tyrannodons, haven't you? yeah. Uh, probably the biggest I ever found uh, is on display at the museum in Los Angeles. I guess it's... Uh, uh, Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. I've seen that. Oh, you mean the one that's got a huge, like, uh, eight, ten-foot wingspan or something like that? Well, this was just the skull. Well, I shouldn't say oh, right. just the skull because it's, you know, five feet long, probably. Uh, unfortunately, they did put a crest on it, which I don't think mm -hmm. it had a crest. Um, but it makes it that much bigger. So, I mean, but, but I mean, the jaw uh, width between the two jaws is like... Uh, Nine inches, ten inches, the the top jaw and the bottom jaw together. When I found wow. it, when I found it as a fifteen or sixteen year old, I can't remember. Uh, I thought it was a zyphact and a spectral fin, <laughs> so I, I did jig it a little bit on the edges, but not bad. Dad told me I did all right, but uh, that we were hoping the whole thing would be in there, and it went back. I don't even know if there was any neck ver cervical vertebrae with it, uh, but it, it, it's just a monster of tranodon. And so this flying reptile, what strata? What strata do you find that in? It's in the chalk. In the Smoky Hill chalk. So uh, then it died into the ocean, and yeah. it was the sediment that preserved it, or the dead coccolithophores raining doubt on it. You would think we'd find, yeah, you'd think we'd find a lot more skulls because there's not much to eat on a pteranodon. I mean, you find quite a few wings. There's a lot of wings that are about to show up. Once again, that's the thing that I'm thinking about is, with uh, tranodons, 
we were always pictured, you know, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s and I had my, my dinosaur books, you'd always see the pteranodons hanging off a cliffside. They, had to, they, couldn't, they didn't think they could really flap. But what are their bones doing out here in the middle of the Western Interior Seaway? Do you think they were diving into the ocean, skimming along the ocean? Could they swim? What do you think? Or did they die and just... I, I, believe, I believe they were skimmers, and I think they were like an albatross. They would go as far, you know, they could go anywhere. When they got hungry, they'd see a little school of fish and scum down. And then as I factness was seeing, what the hell is that? Boom! You know, and uh, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're done. You think that, that, that could that, happen every now and then? Oh, yeah. It, ha it happened quite a bit because there's been, there's you know, pteranodons are really rare because they're not, they don't live in the ocean, and birds are even rarer, but we find birds out here too. The most imp right. One of the most important evolutionary uh, traits were, were, were because of Kansas birds with teeth. And that's what, that's right. that's what did in the National Paleontology uh, because this uh, representative from Alabama or someplace down there, he says, why are we spending money on books about birds with teeth? <laughs> and so Marsh was the, the national paleontologist, and they got rid of it. There's only a couple uh, federal paleontologists out here in the central part of the United States. There's one in, um, uh, so, in Colorado and one in Nebraska. So these pteranodon <laughs> fossils are found Pteranodon. Spell it, please. P-T-E-R-A-N-O-N-O-D-O-N, Pteranodon. Okay. And they have big, long, stork-like uh, beaks. Yeah, they have long, uh, with no teeth. Right. And so you find them in what would be the center of the seaway, far from land? Not necessarily. Uh, we don't know. Where, we don't know if there are islands, so we don't, we don't really oh. know about that. But you know, they, they were they were probably long ranging animals. They could go way out. You know, but surely uh, someone has mapped the changing seashores uh, throughout the eastern and western sides of this interior seaway. Well, there's probably some people have done that. Um, there are there are people that worked on you know where the shoreline was. There's been a lot of speculation on that. But what was so cool is back in '92, that first day I went fossil hunting. That's what I found with you. I said, and the thing is, Dave, and you got to come out here sometime. You learn to spot these bones and all this stuff. And it, it's you got to train your eye. Chuck goes out and he can pick stuff out left and right that you and I would never ever see. And even this morning, we went to the Jerusalem rocks. We saw some pretty cool stuff. We were fossil hunting yesterday. There are Mosasaur bones laying there. I can barely tell what I'm looking at, but Chuck and his wife, Barb, who's also a collector and a preparator extraordinaire, they can spot these things. And uh, But I felt so lucky that I was able to spot a, a pteranodon that first day fossil hunting with you. And I added the silent P in front of my name, so I'm Raymond Patrol. 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 And what bone was it? Uh, it Chuck, it's on display at the gallery. It, it, right? it was a leg bone, which are more rare oh. than more rare than wing bones. Uh, but actually, for him to see that was pretty good because uh, I we had found a mosasaur, or I, I had discovered a little mosasaur before that. I said, well, when you're when you're looking through the chalk, you want to see something that's dark because the bone the right. bone is dark, and that showed up pretty good. It was dark on that gray chalk, you know, so. But I was so amazed that I helped, we looked at it and you said, oh, that's a pteranodon. And how did you know that? 
Uh, How'd you know that? Because it's flat and smooth. <laughs> it, it's flat and uh, because they were hollow bones, but because... I was going to say, they, are those hollow bones? They were hollow, be, but, reptile bones. But, they, but they were so weak that, you know, when the tons of pressure of sediment squeezes them all flat. So uh, we don't get three-dimensional trandolon bones in the chalk. Well, wait a minute. This wait, wait. So, so you have this chalk uh, that you say is 500 feet thick. That is tons, but it's not like a Rocky Mountain sitting on top of it. I mean, that's a it's lot not going to be. That's a lot of weight. I mean, uh, if you pick up one of those big chalk rocks, and if you've done any digging in it, you know that you're moving a lot of weight because right. you're okay. having to deal with it. Uh, it's heavy. I mean, it's, uh, and, and it was probably even heavier when it was loaded with water, you know. Yeah. We're talking about just squeezing, squeezing, squeezing down, you know. <laughs> I always wondered, with CT scanning and MRI imaging, they can take a squished fossil and turn it into the three dimensions that it originally was. I wonder yeah. if there are any fossils out there that are squished and no one... And they thought, oh, that's what it looks like. And they didn't realize it's well, just a squished. Probably not very many because people are aware of what that pre sedimentary pressure has done. Now, I, uh, there's a guy that was, did a paper on uh, uh, as far as sexual dimorphism between uh, pterosaurs. And he was trying to get good measurements on pelvises to see if he could tell a female from a male. Well, he couldn't really use the chalk specimens, but the Santana formation in Brazil, the, the pterodactyls come out in concretions. So the concretion went around the thing and protected it and it kept it more three-dimensional. So he sure. was able to make measurements off of those. And would these well, uh, pteranodons be egg layers? Uh, we don't know for sure. I, we assume they were, but... Right. Well, of all the flying reptiles, do they, is there evidence of any of them being egg layers or giving birth? I'm not sure if that's ever been documented. Hey, Chuck, let me ask you this. Every now and then, and actually, Dave, sometimes in the chalk, there are these, some specimens have got everything in them. And I know that you have collected with uh, your father, Marion, uh, who describes himself as just another vertebrate, which I thought is always cool. J-A-V. Just another vertebrate. But you guys found a mosasaur. There's a mosasaur that's at the L.A. County Museum. It is the most complete mosasaur ever found because it's got the skin impressions. It's got the gut contents. It's got the contour of the big tail fluke on it. Are there other spectacular fossils like that that you found such detail in? Uh, Babies? Sometimes. Uh, I, I, have, I have a Zyphactinus in storage that has all kinds of... Uh, shark's teeth and you know scratch marks and uh, organic material within the specimen. So I think a lot of the wow. early a lot of the early collection they wanted to get them out, and so a lot of times they used slab mess and, and they poured plaster directly on things. That did preserve things in place pretty well because the chalk sometimes can be very soft, and you want to hold it together. And George Sternberg was a master at big slabs. Uh, I kind of cross between the two. I do slab collecting sometimes if something is very well articulated. Uh, 
if you can put it in a slab, then it protects. And usually the bottom side is the best preserved because when the thing died, a lot of its bones were pressed in the way they should be on the bottom. So when you when you put plaster over the top, then you flip it over, then the best side's using it. Not always, but normally the, be- the bottom's the best. So You've got a short-necked plesiosaur at the L.A. County Museum that you guys dug up. It's got a baby in its gut, right? Yeah. It, did it eat the baby or <laughs> did it have the baby? No, it, 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 it was pregnant. Uh, with wow. the baby. Uh, unfortunately, there was no head to it and part of the neck was gone. But my guess is something probably whacked its head off and that's why it was preserved in the bottom because... because <laughs> Wait, the baby or the, the, the baby, mother? The baby is inside. The, the rest of the mother went down with the baby inside and that's why right. it was preserved. Uh, that was an interesting specimen because it was in the pure shale. It's not in my fa- it's not my favorite uh, matrix to work in. It's very soft and kind of flaky. Uh, so the Ni- Niobrara chalk is that the softest of all the chalks in that area? It depends on the location. Like I say, they use building oh. they use building rock uh, from Niobrara chalk. Oh, depending on the deposition, the yeah, same formation the could be. Soft or hard. Yeah, there could be. There's some areas that are like uh, three or four feet thick and solid chalk, and that's the kind of stuff they would take their their saws and cut, and then they would pop them loose, and then they would use them for building stone. And there's several uh, leftover quarries out here uh, that still have not so many of them anymore. But I can remember going to some. They still had rails where they would run their machine on and cut. Cut uh, holes in the. You mean dim. rails made out of chalk? No, uh, ma- ma- oh, metal yeah. rails, small right. small rails that they could run their saws down, and oh, then, right, and, right. Then, and then cut into the chalk, and then pop them loose for the building stone. Uh, and actually, uh, the old church that our uh, Keystone Gallery is in was laid up in uh, uh, 1916, so they really didn't have any trucks. That was yeah. all brought in there with wagons. They hauled the yeah. they hauled the sand from the Smoky Hill probably in wagons. So that was a lot of work, you know. And, and when you see those buildings fall down, it kind of makes you sad because yeah. when we first moved out there, there was a lot a lot of ones that could have easily been saved, but they're gone now because once the weather gets between the two layers, and then just fall down and. So Ray, you you're sitting there. I could see cottonwoods behind you. You're you're in Kansas. What what little city are you in? <laughs> we're near. We're we're actually way the hell out in the country. We're between uh, Scott City and Oakley. And uh, okay, so you're in I western can see Kansas. For miles and miles. You're uh, western Kansas, and the uh, and the how, famous how monument f- rocks are just on the other side of the tree over there. Do you see? Pete, Ta- really? Pete Townsend or Roger Daltrey yeah. out there Pete anywhere? Townsend, yeah. I can see for miles and miles. <laughs> I, I got a I got a story about uh, Pete Townsend. Oh, really? Uh, I was asked I was asked to perform at the BAFTA Awards in Britain. Oh, and I pretty much opened the show with a comedy routine. And the beginning of my show, my puppet Chuck would always. Oh. Um, yell at someone in the front row that you didn't clap when we came out. This guy didn't clap. This guy didn't clap. And uh, finally he goes, you didn't clap. You didn't clap. Why did you clap? You so big. You didn't. Why did you clap? Who do you think you are? Pete Townsend? Anyway. I said, Chuck, <laughs> that is Pete Townsend. And that was, uh, how I opened, that was how I opened my show at the British well, I, I'm surprised you're talking to me since my name's Chuck. Well, I figured, you do, you, I figured you you'd, look, be, you'd be putting words in my mouth. 
Well, no, I'll tell you, it's where Ray puts his hand to make you the dummy. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, now we Okay, guys, now, now, Ray, so uh, you're, you're sitting there, uh, you're sitting there. You, that sounds like Ray, a... Ray, you, you didn't tell me the name of the town you're in. We're not in a town. Okay, uh, you're I'll, not in a town. We're how between Oakley and below, Scott City. Okay, how many feet below the surface of the, the, the inland seaway are you right now? Well, you know, the Chalk Rock is uh, about a mile away, and we're at about 30 feet below that surface. So if you were to dig right now chalky. where you are, is it white? Is it chalky? No, no. Okay. Oh, did you want, want him to answer, or do you want me to answer? Well, you guys well, no, are pretty you, much you, well, uh, 100 well, yards well, from each other. Well, and Monument <laughs> Rocks is only about 300 yards from where we're sitting. Monument right. Rocks are 50 feet tall. But uh -huh. there's chalk under Monument Rock. So, yeah, if you're drilling a water well or something, a lot of times you'll have to go through chalk to get to the water-bearing rock. But, Chuck, you've been wandering through the Nairobrara Formation for low these many, many decades. Is there something that you haven't found yet that you still want to find? You still haven't found what you're looking for? Is there, is there the glory beast that you've, you've, never, you've been denied? Um, people ask me what my favorite fossil is. Yeah. And I say, the next one. So, okay. so if you ever give up on the search, you, you might as well pack it in. You know? so, so, you know, there could be some things out there. Well, like today, I said, well, I'd like to find a plesiosaur today. Actually, I said that before I found the pregnant plesiosaur that, that, that year because I had found a plesiosaur, and I think we took Ray and Brad to the quarry where it had come out of. It was a short neck, but it was in the chalk, not the shale. Uh, and I had found that, and Dad, Dad had it for quite a while. But uh, but that same, you know, a year or two later, I said, well, I'd like to find another plesiosaur. I don't, I don't think it's any kind of uh, metaphysical... Uh, thing, but I do think uh, you, you're just out there wanting to find something to begin with. Like yesterday, we went out with Michelle and Ray, and I was kind of disappointed we didn't find very much. Actually, today, Barb and I... But well, I did. You found a gillicus tail. Sure, yeah. You told me it was a sardon. Oh, oh, oh do, is that what we agreed on? I'm not sure where we're... we're <laughs> I'm not sure. I want to be a sardon. Okay, well, anyway, it's, it's a, a fish fossil tail. Fossil yeah, fish a tail. tail of, a tail of a fish. What'd you find today? Uh, well, Barb and I each found a shark's tooth, which really shocked everybody because <laughs> they were tiny little things. The only reason I found mine, we were looking at for these mosasaur bones. They were really crusty and kind of, but we 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 couldn't really take anything off of this state park. So uh, the naturalist that was guiding us through there, I said, "Well, why don't we move them up so when it rains again, they won't all wish all the way down." And then so you can bring people back here and show them the fossil in out in the field. Uh, so we were doing that, and then as I was picking through some of these little scrappy pieces, there was a little shark's tooth in there. So uh, I don't know if that was a shark that fed on that mosasaur, but we can make a story about it, you know. But uh. So Chuck, what is the most awesomest, coolest thing you've ever found or seen or the coolest paleontological experience ever? Well, I had a, a, a young kid that, what do you call it? Well, it's kind of like what you guys are doing. Uh, he was recording me and he wanted to know one of my favorite uh, experiences with fossils. And I would say when we collected that big pteranodon that's at LA, 
uh, we had Spiker, and it was my youngest sister and my younger brother and I, and we, we were out with Dad, and we had just put the plaster on it and was getting it ready to haul home, and we see this black, huge black storm coming in from the north, and Dad said, we better get the hell out of here. Uh, that's, that's coming here pretty fast. So we got all loaded up in Spiker, and we all sat in Spiker, and Dad got it out onto the county road, and the storm hit, and it was like uh, torrential rain. It was great for washing new fossils out, though, so we were kind of happy in that respect. But we were sitting out there, and here's old Spiker, and Dad was smart. He left it running, and it started losing cylinders because of the humidity, the moisture. It was just raining so damn hard. It didn't hail a lot, it hailed a little bit. Uh, and then we just sat in there. It was like, it was just really a weird experience. And here we were sitting with this uh, pteranodon uh, skull between us. And we were just sitting there <laughs> waiting to storm out. And uh, finally it started slowly letting up. And we were down to like one cylinder in Spiker. It was like, punka, punka, punka. It was like a heartbeat thing. It was just really weird. Uh, I probably should write it up as a story because when we got home, my mom, who was a, a great uh, artist and writer, but uh, she said, you need to write that down. We never did. In other words, we, had, shit, we wanted to go put a model together or something. We were really <laughs> into writing stories. But uh, to me, it is an interesting thing because it was that total experience with weather, with the fossil, uh, being with my my dad and, and he, how he handled the situation was pretty interesting. And finally, and that fossil's on display. That, that, at the LA that's County the, Museum. the great big skull that's on of Tranadol well, skull that's on display. I'm going that's to really uh, cool. I'm going to recreate that soundscape in editing. Boom. Well, Boom. actually, there Boom. was a truck that just wasn't driving by just now here. <laughs> let me ask you. Let me ask you this, Chuck. Um, I know you're a songwriter, and we usually ask our our uh, our people. Uh, our, our guests, if they could time travel back, when would they go back to and what would you want to see? I know that you've written a beautiful song called Imagine a World. Could you recite that? Because I think that paints a picture of Kansas in the Nairobara ages 80 million years ago. Yeah, I could recite it. I'm used to singing it, but I think I can recite it. Uh, and as far as going back, if I went back there, I definitely want a big, big boat. I'd want like a dis <laughs> like a destroyer or something. I don't know. We're gonna <laughs> need a bigger boat. Yeah, that's kind it's of a dangerous uh, place yeah, to be. It would be very dangerous when you think about these swimming lizards that are fit forty five feet long. I mean, the one in Jurassic World was a little big. But still, <laughs> it was pretty dangerous. So that could take you out in a moment. Yeah. yeah so uh, imagine a world. So it's imagine a world, an ancient sea where creatures swam is now prairie. Reptiles in the air and birds with teeth, giant swimming lizards, sharks lurking beneath. Prehistoric animals to blow your mind, sailfish and swordfish and all other kinds. Flying pterodactyls and turtles abound. The diversity of life can be found all around. We're on the rolling prairie, now a sea of grass. Once an open waterway in the distant past. The earth is ever changing, we may need to swim again. Now we're just trying to adapt to the world we're living in. 
Okay, now you need to edit it. God damn it. <laughs> okay. We'll work with that, man. Imagine a world. And Ray, will you get me the song too? Because I know I don't want to. I don't want it to buy the whole CD. <laughs> I don't. Ha- I don't have it on. I-, I do have CDs, but I don't have that on CD. Yeah. It was more recent. All right. Maybe we'll get drunk and we'll do a. Now, can I ask my tonight. question? Because we're at an hour fifteen right oh, now. Oh my! Let's that's go, that's a long time, man. Yeah. That's long. Here comes a heavy okay. one. Here comes you a heavy ready, one. Mm-hmm. Now, Chuck, I don't know how social media savvy you are but uh this has been a crazy year and i've noticed that people are posting opinions on social media not based in scientific fact not fact checking their posts and sending out in the world just a mass of disinformation so what can you do what can we do to help promote the fact that science is based on fact and opinion is just that, someone's opinion. I think uh, opinions are going to happen no matter what, uh, even within the scientific community. But uh, you still have to go under peer review. And that means no matter what you come up with scientifically, whether it's 30 million years ago, 50 million years, you have to run it through a battery of people that are maybe going to challenge you at every moment. And so when you finally come up with uh, science that stays the course, that's what we should do. I mean, it has nothing to do with uh, what you like or dislike. It has something to do with the facts. I mean, that's basically it. This world has been here an awfully, awfully long time. I have people come in and say, oh, well, this happened during the flood. And I said, it happened during a flood. <laughs> a flood. All you guys do is change one one word. Yeah. And uh, it, it it was flooded in here. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it was, uh, but it's not the flood. I, I just don't, I don't try to argue because I'm not going to change their mind. Uh I, I wish I could, but I can't, and they, they're not going to change my mind either. Uh, this whole world is for us, you know. We should take care of it. We should relish in what we have without worrying about what happens after, you know. Uh, to me, uh, it's all right here. Well, you know, science is always going to be science. The, the peer-reviewed science will always continue. But I really do see that you guys are doing a pretty remarkable thing at the Keystone Gallery and Highway 83 between Scott City and Oakley. You have Kansans who, as we know, famously, there are many Kansans that are very conservative and really don't believe in evolution. You must get confronted every now and then, but you were actually very friendly and you talk people through this. I I don't really try to, I don't, I just tell them what I know and you know, what, what's there. I say, there it is. (laughs) You know, there's a physical evidence of something. So Chuck, (laughs) if if a, uh, if a a skeleton is 86 million years old, how is that possible when the earth is only 10,000 years old? Because it's the truth. So there you go. But but I also want to point out that uh, Chuck is also an amazing artist. And, yeah, I've uh, seen, and his wife. I went to the website. Amazing. You, you know, as I said, your appreciation of sunsets and beauty and color and, and the wide open expanses. Through your, through your art and your science and your beautiful fossil preparation that you do with Barbara, you guys are on the front lines. And that's why I say uh, my best fossil is the next one. So because, yeah. because I, I'm thinking, well, 
right around the corner is going to be something that might be something else. So, And that's the name of the title of this episode. Hmm. What's that? What would you just call it? My best fossil is the next one. My best fossil. Can you see the pig over there? Uh, wait, wait, yeah, he's right over there. That's pretty rude. That's rude, Ray. You shouldn't talk about <laughs> the pig that. right over there, man. Chuck, it's an honor to meet you. Uh, I've heard so much about you, and finally, what what a great afternoon. It's good that you met a Chuck that's not a dummy. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Or at least I think. I told I think you I'm not a, I bet Chuck doesn't like to be called a dummy, does he? Uh, he hates it. <laughs> Oh my God. What's the matter, Chuck? Oh no. What's the matter? Isn't this the part in the show? I run down in the audience and kill somebody? We don't do that in our show. Oh. They go back and forth quite a bit, uh, Mr. Strassman yeah. and his Chuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that uh, Dave was nice to my friend Chuck, and I thank you guys. We're all friends yeah, now. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, Keep on rocking in the free world, yeah, brother. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just Chucky. We're not talking about Chucky on you. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. All right, uh, gentlemen. Dude. Hey, you guys have a great day. And go out and find a uh, Mosasaur tooth for me, will you, Ray? Okay. I'll see what I can do, brother. All right. Wow. What a great guy. Told you, man, he's a charming dude. Charming Chuck Bonner. He actually records under the name Lonesome Charlie Bonner. <laughs> But no, so glad we got to hear some of uh, the lyrics to his beautiful songs. And I wish you could see some of his paintings. Actually, we'll have some of his paintings on the website. Great. And uh, some of the pictures from the first time I met him and then uh, some recent ones and some from the show together. So. Well, what an amazing life, how your own father is a, a famous paleontologist and you're out going out with your dad, finding some of the most iconic fossils, and then his life becomes the same thing. It's it's just beautiful. Yeah, his dad was a collector, you know, uh, a hunter, a fossil hunter and, uh, you know, finder, and he prepped them out and worked with all kinds of uh, uh, scientists from all over the place, but Marion Bonner. And I remember one of the, the I watched a video once of Marion Bonner because uh, he had passed away sadly before I got there in Kansas. So Chuck played me a video once and he's doing an interview with, this is Marion Bonner doing an interview with uh, one of the local uh, uh, radio stations. And he said, you know, in the end, it's really not about me at all because I just find these things and I am just another vertebrate. <laughs> That's so humble. I'm just another vertebrate. And and uh, Brad Matson and I, in my first book, we we heard that phrase, just another vertebrate. We thought that was so beautiful because it really does put you in your place in the planet. And we started signing our names J-A-V for a while, just another uh, vertebrate, J-A-V. Cool. So anyways, I, I really feel like I know Marion through Chuck. You know, and yeah, yeah. Uh, Chuck, I got to say, too, is out there uh, on Highway 83 with Barb Shelton, Barbara Shelton, his wife. And the two of them work together and uh, two peas in a pod out there and highly recommend people stop in at the Keystone Gallery if you can and uh, see what they're doing. It's a wonderful thing. Cool. Prepping a fossil takes a long, long time. I did a little Eocene fish up in the Green River Formation when I was visiting Kemmerer, Wyoming. And, oh, and yeah. just to do a few inches took an hour. Just, I mean, I'm talking about millimeters, inches around a, a little tiny fish. 
Yeah, try doing that with a 15-foot Zephactinus. And yeah. Chuck and Barb do that all the time. They've got... Yeah. They have what I call the Mosasaur Corral out in back of their place because it's actually full of Mosasaurs that they're going to get around to. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, a fantastic uh, episode, Ray. And thank you so much for, I, I really want to meet him in person. And thank you for introducing me to your buddy, your friend, Chuck Bond. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my pleasure. Totally my pleasure. And uh, it was great having the Midwest represented here. Uh, paleo nerds. <laughs> That's right. So please, if you like our show, please go to our website and check out all the pictures that uh, are associated with Chuck. And uh, please review us on iTunes if you can and tell your friends. We got to spread science, Ray. We've got to spread science in these dark days. Oh, yeah. Dark days. Science is going to save us. And, uh, oh. you know, uh, hey, I made my appointment for my vaccine today. Really? Yeah. Well, you mean uh, polio? <laughs> the COVID-19, I get part A on, I got to wait till March 11th. Sad for about what? That. Oh, for COVID-19. What's that? <laughs> is it a, uh, wait, have I missed something? What year? It's just, is it in 2019? Oh, this is all a dream. <laughs> it's all a dream. Whoa. Yeah, well, um, Whoa. you know, as you know, my work as a entertainer, I can't get on a plane and go to Australia until I have proof that I've been vaccinated. So I can't even go back to work without that uh, QR code tattooed on my arm. Well, good luck with that, man. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, hey, I've got hope. Always got a blast. Hope. Yeah. Always a blast, dude. Ray, I'm saying goodbye from Ojai, California. And before you even ask me, yes, I'm a paleo nerd. Hey, Dave. Uh, I was, I'm a paleo nerd too. Well, you know that. And, uh, I want to tell you the sun is shining today here in beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, and I'm going to go down on the dock and uh, gaze out across the water, dude, all the way down to California, and I'm waving to you. Bye-bye, man. <laughs> See you, buddy. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.